This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Support for today's show comes from the new Amazon series, Homecoming, directed by Sam Esmail, the creator of Mr. Robot. Based on the critically acclaimed podcast by Eli Horowitz and Mika Bloomberg, Homecoming stars Julia Roberts as Heidi Bergman, a caseworker at the Homecoming Transitional Support Center. But four years after starting a new life, Heidi is faced with questions about why she left the facility, and she realizes there's a deeper story beyond the one she's been telling herself. Don't miss Homecoming. Stream now, only on Amazon Prime Video. Loop is making engagement ring shopping easier with personal service, expert style advice, customization options, and beautiful inspiration to help you find a ring that fits your style and budget. All Loop rings are hand-set, individually screened by their team of experts, and meet the highest quality standards. Finding her ring is a big decision, so here's $100 off your ring to free up some extra dollars so you can take her somewhere nice and really do up that big proposal in style. Just go to loopjewelry.com slash pages slash kick and use code kick. That's loopjewelry.com slash pages slash kick and offer code kick. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi. I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. With over 100 million albums sold, The Who is considered one of the greatest rock bands of the 20th century. From classics like My Generation to Tommy, The Who defined that generation in the 60s and 70s and broke new ground in rock and roll, creating the first rock opera and inventing techniques like the windmill strum, the power chord, that's C-H-O-R-D, and the musical use of electrical feedback influencing everyone from Pink Floyd to Jimi Hendrix. Seven of their albums rank on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list, and Tommy, My Generation, and Who's Next have been inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. The Who has also received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Grammy Foundation, been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and in 2008 became the first rock band ever to be honored by the Kennedy Center. It's a long way from the ragtag skiffle band that Roger Daltrey started with a few friends and a homemade guitar in 1959. Now the lead vocalist and founder of The Who writes about that wild musical journey in his new memoir titled Thanks a Lot, Mr. Kibblewhite, My Story. And today, Roger Daltrey joins me on the podcast to talk about how the hardships his parents experienced during the Blitz in World War II paved the way for his generation to shake things up two decades later. He recalls what it was like to be the poster boys for the British mod revolution and why he never fully embraced that fad and sums up what it was like to play Woodstock with one word, chaos. He talks about how he and Peter Townsend pushed each other's creative boundaries during the making of The Who's Tommy, how he managed to resist the drug-fueled excess of the 1960s and 70s, and how it led to quite a bit of tension between him and his bandmates, especially The Who's famously reckless drummer, Keith Moon. He also reveals how he processed Moon's tragic death in 1978, how it led to the band's breakup in the early 80s, and how a Silicon Valley con man got The Who to finally reunite years later. Coming up with rock and roll legend Roger Daltrey in just a moment.
Roger Daltrey is the lead vocalist and founding member of the legendary rock band The Who. In a career that has spanned more than 50 years, he's produced eight solo albums in addition to his work with The Who, was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1990, and received a Kennedy Center honor in 2008. Now he writes about his incredible rock and roll life in a new book that's being called one of the best rock memoirs in recent memory. It's titled, Thanks a Lot, Mr. Kibblewhite, My Story. Roger Daltrey, welcome to the show, man. How you doing, Ben? I want to start by going way back to pre-Who. You were born during the Blitz, but not the one that most people think of. It was, no. what, the V1 rocket Blitz at the end, huh? Yeah, the people, people don't realize. The, the Blitz was on the east end of London, which was all the dock area. And uh, we lived in West London. But in 1944, Hitler had suddenly leashed his V1 uh, bombs on us, which were like a, a jet engine propelled missile. <laughs> yeah, you used to hear coming and then it would stop and everybody, everybody used to just run because you never knew where yeah. it would fall. And that was kind of like, they called it a mini blitz. It was op Operation Steinbock. And this was 1944. And it was the 29th of February when my mum started labour and she was just determined <laughs> I was not going to be a leap year baby. <laughs> well done, girl. Uh, uh, and uh, it was during one of these air raids, so it must have been a really hairy time because I yeah. I can't imagine what my parents and my, and my whole family and every other family in, in Britain must have gone through through those years mm -hmm. to kind of go down a shelter, come back out, and half the street would be missing, just yeah. gone, you know, just rubble. And the only similarity that an American can kind of draw for it on your shores, apart from a, a few kind of balloon bombs that fell on the West Coast, is 9-11, of course. And yeah. you know, can you imagine the trauma that that caused? Well, they were going down the shelters and coming up to that for almost five years. Yeah. So you can imagine what it did to them. And you talk about the toll that it took on your parents, but you also say that what they went through in the 40s actually set the stage for your generation and what you guys would create in the 60s. Explain how that evolved. Well, what they went through in the 40s was by the war destroying everything. We had no option but to build. Mm -hmm. um, London was leveled, but, but what it did for us, it, it gave us a blank canvas of which mm -hmm. to paint who we were, our generation coming up, which became the first adolescent, teenage generation with a little bit of spare cash to spend. Um, so it gave us this blank canvas to, to paint on. And then from your country, along comes Elvis. And of course, every every young sort of 11, 12, 13-year-old, pre-pubescent, into puberty, uh, youngster in England, male, wanted to be Elvis. Every female wanted to yeah. give him a hug. <laughs> a hug. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. that's very PG. Uh, uh, so, of okay. course, we couldn't be Elvis, but we, we immediately yeah. gone from these very straight, short back and sides haircuts, rushed out to the bathrooms, got hold of a bar of soap and slicked our hair back <laughs> uh, because we couldn't afford anything like any kind of hair treatment to, to, to get the same look. But the soap worked wonders. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, so, so there we were, and then, and then along came this this music, which was American, early American folk songs, Lead Belly songs, and Chain Gang songs, Appalachia songs, um, which present, were presented in our country as a, as a music called skiffle, yeah, by, by a guy yeah, that's called a term Ronnie we Donegan. Don't know here. Yeah. 
But it was and, kind of roots music, right? Yeah. And Lonnie Donegan was the one that, I, you know, I saw it obviously and I thought, wow, that, what, a, what a dream existence that must be to be singing. I, was, I already knew I could sing because I'd been in a church choir. Uh, but when I saw Lonnie Donegan, he sang these songs and, and they kind of spoke to us in a different way. And the way he sang them, and by the way, he didn't look cool at all. He, had, he used to come on <laughs> yeah. in a, a dinner jacket and a bow tie, you know. <laughs> but it was the way he sang and the songs he was singing, the fact that they were chain songs, these were songs of pain. These were songs yeah. of anger. Uh, you know, there was all this other stuff going on in the words. Uh, Lonnie was the one that made me think, I can do this. I, you know, I'd like to do this because Lonnie used to throw his head back halfway through a song and just let rip. It was like... You know, just like uh, gospel music, uh -huh. you know, it became something much, much deeper in the way it touched me. So every, and, and the great thing about that music was that everybody could just get some kind of instrument, you know, uh, I made my first guitar, we couldn't That's afford right. to buy it. Yeah. So I made my first kind of acoustic guitar by copying one that somebody lent my dad so I could get the size of it and and look at how it was made. And I learnt the three chords of which you could play most of these skiffle songs. And, of course, once you get a guitar, learn the three chords and can start singing those songs, someone else picks up something and starts banging it. Uh, you get a washboard and some thimbles and you can get a rhythm section going, <laughs> you know, and a tea chest, which was a kind of two foot, maybe two foot six square plywood box with a string through the middle of the top, open end at the bottom, a broomstick and a piece of string. You could make that sound every bit as good as a double bass. Yeah, it's, it kind of reminds me of Fat Albert and his junkyard band. Well, I don't that's, know what, that's what it was. You know, it was kind of equivalent yeah, to a kind of jug band. Yeah, 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 junkyard yeah. band. <laughs> and so every yeah. street very quickly had a skiffle band. Uh, and that's where the kind of the Who or, or my bit of what became the who started i had these my old friend from school harry wilson he very soon came in as a drummer when we we decided we move up from the washboard to a real drum kit and it and it slowly slowly progressed mm -hmm. through the 60s yeah and i suppose there are plenty of people who might assume that the who began with pete townsend but you started the band when you were in what high school and somewhere along the way he auditioned and you brought him on what did you think of pete when he first met him well when it was i mean first came John, when he auditioned because yeah, you, you knew yeah, him before that right yeah i I, yeah. I well i recognized them from school they were in a year younger than me but they were the kind of characters that you just could not hide in in a crowd they would they stood out. Um, that's, the, that's the only way I can kind huh. of explain charisma. Yeah. They had it. Even then, they had it. And they stood out in a crowd. You couldn't hide them in a crowd of 5,000, especially Pete, who, who whose nose at the time was very extremely prominent because we <laughs> were just coming out of food rationing, which oh, incidentally, yeah. 1945, was the worst year of the whole year. When the war was over, we had even less food for the first 18 months because we had yeah. to share what little we had with, with the, Germans. the Germans. Yeah. And, you know, a, a loaf of white bread was, was towards, you know, the middle of 1945 consisted of half a loaf of chalk. 
<laughs> just to make up the, the amount, you know. And that's what we have been fed on. But we survived it. You know? Anyway, so uh, I'd noticed them at school. And, and, and the first one to join me was John Entwistle, who lived around the corner. And I bumped into him on the street coming home from the sheet metal work factory where I worked. And he was carrying a, a homemade bass guitar. And I thought, well, someone of my my own kind of <laughs> mentality, you know, because I had already made my first uh, electric guitar by this time. And I, I, I talked to John and he said he was in a trad band and he played trumpet most of the time, but he was learning this bass guitar and he'd made it himself. It, it was a... It wasn't much better than my one, if if as good. Uh, and I invited him. I said, you know, you, are you in a band? He said, uh, yeah, I'm in this jazz band. And, and I, you know, it's really good. And we played quite a few youth clubs and things. I said, so I asked him if he was getting paid. And he said, no. I said, he said, are you? And I said, yes. And I was lying through my teeth. <laughs> but he... <laughs> so he invited me along. Uh, sorry, I invited him along to the next rehearsal of the band, and it was quite obvious that John was a musical talent. There was no doubt about it. He has had a musicality about him uh, immediately obvious to me. And he became our bass player. And at the time, we used to have. I used to be on lead guitar. We had another guy called Reg on rhythm guitar, and he wasn't very good at all. And John on bass. Uh, we, had, we had my mate Harry on drums, and we had a singer called Colin. Um, and we were kind of doing what kind of Cliff Richard songs, which is okay, like the, yeah. the, the, the British Elvis, um, which were all very soft and a little bit twee. Yeah. Um, and, our, and our singer thought he, he kind of was Cliff Richard. <laughs> we didn't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but anyway, after about six weeks, John said, you know, we're, we're not going to get anywhere with Reg on this rhythm guitar. He said, I know someone who would fit perfectly in this band. And I said, hold it, yeah, who's that? And he said, well, his name's Pete. And he's in the jazz, jazz band with, he was in the jazz band with me. Uh, and he played the banjo, he said, but he's a great guitar player. So I said, oh, I'll bring him along then. So he brought him along the next week and there was Pete Townsend. Rhythm, a rhythm guitar, and it was immediately obvious that this guy had something incredibly special because he was playing chords the shape of which we'd never seen and the sound of which and the rhythm of which we'd never heard. I mean, and maybe that came from his previous banjo playing, I don't know. But yeah, he was <laughs> immediately obvious that this guy was something special. Yeah, it's funny to think that one of the greatest rock bands of all time pretty much began doing Dixieland jazz. <laughs> well, we used to, but then, then because that's thought. what they used to do. And then, and then yeah. of course, there was that period through the early 60s where people like Acker Bilk and Kenny Ball, there was a period where trad jazz actually charted mm -hmm. yeah. and became, and, and of course, in those days when you were playing the, the bars and, and the clubs and things that we used to play, uh, if it was in the charts, you were expected to play it. So mm -hmm. the Who actually did go back <laughs> to be in a jazz band for, for two songs. You know, <laughs> and I played the trombone. No. So it's quite, it's quite funny, really, when I think back of it. I mean, we, we would have done anything just to earn, earn a crust.
Now, The Who became heavily identified with the British mod culture in the 60s, um, but you weren't a big fan of that. In fact, you say it really wasn't much of a movement at all. Well, I, I was, let's put it, I, it wasn't, I wasn't a fan, fan of it. I kind of loved it. I, I loved the, the fact that it was very different and it was very fashion-driven. Mm -hmm. uh, but it just seemed to me that, that the, it, it had its pinnacle period which lasted about six months and then it became a mess just like most fashions do um and that's when i kind of fell out of love with it and i never could be a mod because i i had curly hair <laughs> <laughs> that's right you <laughs> which was the equivalent the of you know having some sexual yeah. transmitted disease <laughs> <laughs> you know mods can't have curly hair <laughs> um so it was a very difficult period for me and and we were we were this kind of long-haired blues band, and we met, went, met a guy who became our manager called Peter Meaden. But he recognised the importance of this modern, this new fashion movement that was evolving in London, and said they need they need a band as their figureheads because the Stones are old hat now. They're done, you know. The Beatles are done. You know, you know, you can't be a, a look-alike Stones. You've got to be something else. Yeah. And this is who it is. So. The look-alike Stones walked into a barber shop and walked out as the, the band for the mods. But equally, inside, I was still a teddy boy. <laughs> now, along that same time period, there was an incident where Pete broke a guitar, and suddenly that kind of recklessness became synonymous with you guys, which is something that you sort of resisted. The, the reckless image and the 60s drug culture wasn't really for you. You know, when, once the drugs kicked into the rock business in a big way. Mm -hmm. uh, in the early 60s, it was amphetamine, which was mo mostly taken by the groups because we were doing two shows a night. You know, we'd work between 8 p.m. and 11 p.m. Then we'd drive maybe 50, 60, 70 miles to another gig, and then we'd work from 2 in the morning to perhaps 5 in the morning. Mm -hmm. uh, to stay awake that wow. long, that's with the day job as well, by the way. Yeah. This is a Friday night. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. uh, that can become quite a long day. Yeah, for sure. Because <laughs> you were working in factories for yeah. a lot of that time. Yeah. That was your I day was, job. Uh, and then you the had others were at still night, at college. Huh? John had just started yeah. in, in an office, which was a whole different ballgame yeah. and working in a factory. But um, I couldn't do those drugs. I, I, I only wanted to be a good singer. Mm -hmm. And the amphetamine used to just dry me up. And my, my voice used to crack and it was it was uncomfortable. I'd end up chewing my lip uh, and I just used to, it, used to make me feel awful. So mm -hmm. I didn't do them. The rest of the guys did, but it was controllable then. But then the, then, then towards the, 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 the 1965, on our first, first tour of Europe, it got very out of control in the Who. They, they were away from home. Party time, you know, this is <laughs> big time party time. Yeah. And I can't remember how many shows we did. It doesn't really matter. But by the last show, they were popping so many pills. The music was not only unlistenable, it was, it was too fast. I couldn't even get the words of the songs into them. They were being played so fast, so loud and so messy. And uh, I decided that, that this band seems going to go forward or it's going to end. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I flashed all their 
drugs down uh, down the toilet, which caused a, <laughs> caused a rather nasty fight. Yeah, and I guess for a few days you guys broke up until they days, realized it was a that few weeks. they were getting booed without you. <laughs> yeah, they they, they did. Yeah. A, I think I, I seem to remember it was about three or four weeks, and they did a few shows without me, but I was fine. I was I thought when I started this band, and I found that you know these people came to us. With the energy of the universe, somehow or the other, the, the ingredients I needed turned up. Mm-hmm. Can't explain it, but that was it. That's, that's what happened. And I wasn't worried at all. I thought, well, I'll just start another band. Because <laughs> 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 uh, by now yeah. I knew I could sing. We'd had hit records and, and uh, had a following. Um, and it was only after a month that the management came back to me and they said, look, you, uh, they, well, the management went to them and said, you've got to take him back because he's not working without Roger. They then came, the management came to me and said, look, they, they want you back, but they'll only have you back if you promise not to fight anymore. So I used to rule the band <laughs> with an iron fist. Yeah. yeah. I used to love a scrap. <laughs> and, uh, but you didn't and, like so I said, yeah, well, that's great. I said, yeah. but, um, there is, there's only a slight problem. I said, you know, I will go back, but I'll do it, and I will not fight anymore. That's a, that's a deal. That's fine. That's easy to control. Um, but I want them to, to, to give me their word that they won't take any drugs before they go on stage. <laughs> I don't care what they do after. I mean, yeah. that's their business, yeah. and that's fine. I'm not, not, not trying to be a moral make a moral judgment on this. I just wanted the band to be as good as it could possibly mm. be. And you ain't going to do that when you're out of your box on Purple Hearts, you know. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Roger Daltrey when we come back in just a minute. In the next 60 seconds, you're going to learn how the Flatiron School can change your life. The Flatiron School will teach you everything you need to get a job in code, data science, or design, but they'll also prepare you for the jobs that don't even exist yet because this is a school designed to educate you in the art of change. So if you're feeling stuck, bored, or unfulfilled, Flatiron will teach you how to change things. You'll learn by making things, breaking things, and discovering how the future is being built. The results speak for themselves. Go to flatironschool.com podcasts to read about graduates' new careers and salary ranges and explore upcoming courses as well as exciting new careers. 
you can start building your own new career in coding, data science, or digital design at one of Flatiron School's WeWork campuses or take courses online. Go to flatironschool.com podcasts, read the reviews, and sign up for a free intro course. Enrollment is now open. It's time to future-proof your career and change things, starting with you. flatironschool.com podcasts. Almost every day, we hear something on the news about a cyber attack. Sometimes it's just a bunch of pranksters, but more often it's a foreign country with vast cyber resources trying to hack our power grid, our banking system, or our military's information networks. The National Security Agency plays a big part in protecting our country from cyber attacks, and you can help. The NSA is hiring technical professionals to serve on the front lines of information security. If you work in computer science, networking, programming, or electrical engineering, you can help keep your country safe. Design new hardware systems and networks, write faster, smarter programs, protect America's critical infrastructure, or help uncover what our adversaries are planning to do next. Learn more about careers at the National Security Agency today. Visit intelligencecareers.gov NSA. That's intelligencecareers.gov slash NSA. And now, back to the podcast. There's this famous legend about Keith Moon, who was kind of the, the one who was always getting into trouble in the band. He was he, legendary. There's no doubt about that. He drove a Cadillac into a hotel in Michigan. Did you he? didn't personally witness that. Are you skeptical that that ever really happened? Well, you have to read the book about that because if I if I say it over, yeah. there's no, you're going to give all the whole book away. Sure, I mean, sure, you, sure. So, so, um, <laughs> but you, but you, you think basically you think that I, I, you, you might have gotten ripped off by the tour manager. Well, we right? were not the tour manager, our management. <laughs> oh, your manager at the time, Kit Lambert. Uh, you had sort of a, it sounds like a love hate relationship with him because you say creatively he was brilliant, but as a manager. He was pretty much a crook. I mean, when did you well, first realize I, I he was ripping you, you off? I never hated you for being. Uh, you, 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 you've got the wrong word. It okay, was, it was not a love hate. I loved okay. him. Kit was the most lovable bloke. He was fan. He was everything about him was very yeah. lovable. He was gentle, uh, imaginative, incredibly creative, articulate, well educated man. Mm -hmm. Uncomfortably gay, and and yeah. you've got to remember. In this period of the '60s, when he f we first met him, it, that was illegal. You could yeah, go that to was jail. Still illegal in you UK. could go to jail right, for being yeah. gay. I mean, yeah. how ridiculous was that? Um, so, no, it was never love hate. It was always love. But he right. had this side of him which I only became aware of in 1970. I think it was '73, um, where it was quite obvious that they were screwing us. Mm -hmm. um, and in, and it was unnecessary. It was stupid. I never ever wanted to get completely rid of them, um, because of their creative genius. Both Kit and Chris Stamp, brother of Terence Stamp, the actor, were our managers, and they were incredibly creative. And and that I never wanted to lose from the band. Um, but we but I, we found them screwing us and. Later yeah. on, it, it all turned very nasty. Uh, but you know, again, you have to read the book of the reasons why. Um, and yeah. uh, it was it was very sad for me. And I again, it, the drugs took them. I wish I had known now what, what 
I, I wish I I knew then what I know now. Um, maybe things could have got gone different, and mm. we could have intervened in a way that could have helped them. But they were by the time the end came for Kit, he was a very very heavily 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 into mainline drugs. Yeah, I think that you said in the book that you guys would go on this long tour and work your asses off, and then you would come back to your accountant and find out you guys were in debt. From oh, the we tour. we, <laughs> we do these lot. It was hysterical. <laughs> no, we had we had a meeting on it. Like I can't ever forget it. It was in 1971, and by this time we'd had hit records and for six years, and we had this meeting at our accountant's office, and he said, "You've done all. You've done really well this year. You've done all this work. You've done fantastic work." And you know, last you know, last year you were over. It was about five hundred and fifty thousand pounds in debt, and this year you'll be glad to know it's only gone up to six hundred and fifty. <laughs> 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 At which point, uh, Keith, uh, sorry, Keith, he he completely stripped naked and put his balls on the table and his legs in the air. <laughs> he said, "Do you want these as well?" <laughs> Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about what might be considered your most creative period. There was this transitional period between my generation and the Who's Tommy, where the music was transforming sort of into this representation of Pete's inner monologue, and you busted through the bravado of the Mick Jagger style to explore deeper, less comfortable themes as the front man of the band and the one who had to give voice to those lyrics. What was that transition like for you? That that was a very uh, tricky time for me um, because I I I recognised Pete's genius as a writer very very early on, and and I was very comfortable with it right up to my generation. They're quite, you know, that was music to fight to. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, real rock music. And then all of a sudden, uh, and this was straight after the breakup and me being reintroduced to the band, I get presented with songs like Happy Jack. Right. I'm a boy, pictures of Lily. <laughs> um, and I'm going, I, don't, I had this, you know, I had a kind of blues voice. I'm thinking, how do I get myself into this? So I thought, well, the only way I'm going to do this is to end, try and get some psychological understanding of Pete's interior. Uh, and I, that's where I tried to mold what my, I tried to mold my voice into. And when I listen back to it now, I kind of succeeded because it almost sounds like I'm singing from the inside of myself. It's very weird. Yeah. Okay. There's a yeah. quality to yeah, it that is haunting. Yeah. And you, you two kind of fed off of each other yeah, in that period. Yeah. It's very creatively. weird. It's very, very, yeah. you know, because in the end, it, every singer songwriter relationship. To work really well it has to have, and it, it, it's all about empathy mm -hmm. to each other. Yeah, and, and and it shows that it was it was working even then, even though I was struggling every day with it. But the struggle now I listen back was well well worth it. Yeah, yeah, it worked big time. Now I have to ask about Woodstock. It's been romanticized as the seminal moment of the '60s, but you don't have that many good memories necessarily of the experience. You say that it was complete chaos. What went wrong? Well, nothing went wrong, but it was chaos. Mm -hmm. um, and I, but I, that was the first time uh, for me I realized that there is such a thing as fake news, <laughs> because uh, on every news channel, I mean, I was in Connecticut uh, with, staying with my 
my mother and to be father-in-law uh, at their house with, with with Heather, my future wife, and we we put on the TV, and of course, every headline news was about how, what a disaster Woodstock, how it had been rained out, and the governor he declared it a disaster area. All the roads were blocked. Artists were being flown in and out by helicopter. It was, you know, it sounded like a war zone yeah. on the news. <laughs> so so on, on the, this was on the Friday night, the first day of the festival. Anyway, we were due to play on Saturday night, and, and, and I'm still in Connecticut preparing, thinking, well, how are we going to get there? Now they've bro blocked all the roads because we were going to just drive there. So <laughs> anyway, uh, so... To Heather's dad just said, don't worry, he said, I'll drive and we'll, we'll jump in the Volkswagen. So we went, we went to Woodstock in a Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> and Herbie went to Woodstock and he went, <laughs> he went to you know, when it came to a roadblock or anything like that, we just gro drove up the grass yeah. verges and, <laughs> and, and around, the, around them and people just waved us through. Yeah. Um, but it was chaos, but it was a kind of wonderful chaos. Mm -hmm. You know, when you go to those events, all you want to do is a great show. Right. And when you turn up to do the show, and we turned up at sort of 7 o'clock at night, and you don't get on stage till 5 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> <laughs> you, and, yeah. and everything, you haven't had anything to eat, because there was nothing to eat, and, and whatever there was to drink was all laced with <laughs> something or the other. Uh, um, you, you know, it becomes very difficult to kind of, to kind of do the show you're capable yeah, of. Yeah, it's a lot And of I never thought we ever did a great show at Woodstock, but we did a show. <laughs> yeah, and I think um, you said the promoters tried to screw you, didn't they? Well, the, the promoters they didn't, didn't want to pay, pay anyone. Um, <laughs> they didn't want to, but we had to get paid because we, you know, it cost us a lot of money to get there. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it was going to cost us a lot of money, or, or let's look, put it this way, we'd have to learn to do a lot of swimming to get back. <laughs> <laughs> Fast forward to the early 80s, Keith Moon passed away rather tragically, and you say that you and Pete had been expecting that day to come for years. When it finally happened, how did the two of you process that? Uh, it was hard, to say the least. But, you know, and it stayed with us. The music saved us. We mm -hmm. thought, what, what, what do we have left? Because what it was, it was, you, you, you know, um, what we created and what we realized very quickly was that, that, that whatever Keith created in his life existed mostly in his music, in the music we played mm. with him on the drums. Um, so it became quite, after, after we kind of got, we, we, you don't get over the grief of that for years. I'm sure. And I mean years. Because um, he, was, he was such a character. Um, but we had the music, and that's what drove us on. And it was the same thing when John died. The music was all important. What we were given the gift of to create together um, comes first in the end. Pete had said the Who was four people who never should have been in a band together. And yet you guys, the four originals, lasted for a really long time for a rock band. Is that what you would attribute that well, success to? Well, Pete says to? we should never have been in, in a band together, but that's because maybe... Maybe to make the kind of music we were making, which has its own special kind of algorithm, uh, 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 there's something about who music that is mm. so unique. Oh yeah, and it and it and 
for instance, when Kenny joined the band after Keith died, Kenny is a fabulous drummer, but it just did not work with the Who. Yeah. And and I say that not as an insult to Kenny, it's just that his algorithm was different. I mean, it was just, it would have been similar if you put Keith Moon in the faces. It would have been, you can't imagine Keith Moon in the faces. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that, that would have yeah, no, no longer been a fun sing-along, yeah. sing-along a faces <laughs> band, would it? It would have been, whoa, what's going on here? Uh, so, yeah. you, so it was a similar thing with yeah. putting Kenny in The Who. So... Um, you suddenly realise then that Ken, like kids, Pete might have said, you know, we you would never have put us four people together, but maybe that's where greatness comes from is when yeah. you take enormous chances with characters and you four completely different characters, yeah. all alpha males, all kind of all very quirky in 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 different ways, and but it worked. And yeah. we created something totally original, you know. If it, if if you put, you know, four people that who you, you would expect to be in a band together, you get what you expected, and it would yeah. be dull. Yeah, nothing surprising. Nothing. <laughs> there you, was you nothing dull about the around like that. After Keith died, you guys took a break for a very long time, and then I guess it was somewhere around the late '90s that you finally reunited. And in one of the crazier stories in the book. You say it was all because of a total con man. Who who was this guy? Oh God, we got an offer come through for something <laughs> ridiculous amount of money, I and mean, it was two million, two or three million dollars to do one show in Las Vegas. Uh, but the, if the Who appear, the, with one caveat, the show was to be staged to promote a company. I can't, oh God, what was it called? Help me help me out here. Uh, it, it was, I think it was a tech company, Yeah, it was right? a tech company. It was, a, it was, it was a, in the dot-com bubble. shell company. It was a fraud, yeah. right? And, and, and so this guy, <laughs> this guy had this company uh, that was that apparently was going to be doing early streaming on the internet. This was okay. way back in, in, in 1999. Okay. sounds promising. Yeah, and it, of course it did. It was $3 million or $2 million <laughs> or some extraordinary amount of money. So... But with the caveat that one of us had to go down to this big tech conference on the south of France and talk about this company and it Pixelon, that's what it was called, uh, and talk about the uh, the company and, and and what it you know aimed to do. So of course Pete didn't want to do that bit. He wanted to do the gig for the money, but he didn't want to do the, the schlepping down the south of France <laughs> and do the spiel. So I. So I went down there and uh, suddenly realised I, I, you know, I, I didn't have a computer. I knew nothing about the tech, tech industry at all. <laughs> but I looked at the notes. I thought well, she's all right. And when I went down there, it was like I say, it was the early days of the dot com bubble. And I was talking to all these people, talking all this stuff that I didn't understand, but it all, all sounded like cobblers to me. <laughs> it, it, you know, I thought, well, if they can talk cobblers. I can talk cobblers, <laughs> so I made. I went up and did 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 the did the speech to to sell this pixel. And we can this company's going to do this, and when the bandwidths do this, and the when the bandwidths get bigger, pretending to know about bandwidths. The only bandwidth I knew was the the width of the who, yeah, the band you were with, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so uh, anyway, but um, so I did that bit, and I got he he. Paid all the bills, everything was up front. We went to Vegas, we did the gig. 
got paid. Everything fabulous. On the same thing, the same same event. I think I think Aerosmith was on it and loads yeah, of other all big these bands. bands yeah. yeah, huge bands. Then it turned out about three weeks later that the guy had been arrested. Everybody had been paid by the way by this time. Uh, that the whole thing was a confidence trick. <laughs> you know, the Las Vegas job. Yeah, it was he it was a guy who just wanted to have a huge party on the dot com bubble. <laughs> and that's what he did. He didn't make any money out of it. He just wanted to have a party yeah. for all his mates. Everybody but got you in got for paid. free. Yeah, we got paid. <laughs> okay, so who cares? Hey, whatever. Yeah, and I learned to talk bullshit. <laughs> and, the ba- and the band got together because of that. Um, real quickly, before we go, you're not 20 years old anymore. What kind of a toll does it take when you're touring these days? Uh, it's, no, it's all right. It's okay. It I, I mean, I can't do what I used to do. I've got no... no I don't do as much physicality because my body's been wrecked so many times, so many car crashes, bang scrapes and, you know, you name breaks. Um, equally, I can still swing the mic when I want to. I, I don't need to do it now. I'm more into making our music mm-hmm. better than it's ever been. The music, Because that's going to be our legacy is, is Townsend's music. And, and I want to just get people to hear it as, as, as good now as it ever was, if not better in different forms. Yeah. So that's my mission now. Uh, and at the moment, we're still doing that. If I ever come off stage and think I, I'm not delivering it in the way it should be delivered, because there is an energy in the who that has to be there. Yeah. Uh, and if that flame ever leaves me, I will stop. I won't cheat my public. It's too important to me because then, then you're just dialing it in. And I've seen a lot of bands do that. And I loathe it. It's yeah. an insult to the audience. Yeah. And it's and I I remember just as a kid of fourteen years old saving up from my Saturday job to go and see Cliff Richard and the Shadows at the Jizzik Empire in those days. And that ticket cost me a lot of money. Uh, and they were brilliant that night. And it, and I realised then that when you look out at an audience from the stage in this privileged position that we occupy, every one of those people what they've gone through to put their bum on that seat, you owe it to them to be there. And if you don't, yeah. you know, you deserve a kick in the ass. And there's a lot of bands I like to kick in the ass. <laughs> Mention it, no names. Well, I can't say that you don't give your fans their money's worth. Once again, his memoir is called Thanks a Lot, Mr. Kibblewhite, My Story. Roger, it's been fun. Thanks for sitting down. I enjoyed me. it. Thanks again to Roger Daltrey for coming on the podcast. Order his book, Thanks a Lot, Mr. Kibblewhite, My Story, on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. And follow The Who on Twitter at at The Who. The Flatiron School will teach you everything you need to work in code, data science, and design. You'll learn by making things, breaking things, and discovering how the future is being built. The results speak for themselves. Go to flatironschool.com slash podcasts to read about graduates' new careers and salary ranges and sign up for a free intro course. Enrollment is now open. flatironschool.com slash podcasts. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News.
Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.